You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. It's a real pleasure to, uh, to have Helen here, Helen Hughes here, Dr. Helen Hughes here, finally. I've been uh, trying to twist her arm for quite a long time and I finally succeeded. Um, for those of you who don't know Helen, um, she has an extremely impressive biography that I couldn't possibly do justice to, um, but amongst other things, she's the founder, co-founder, co-editor of an incredible art history journal um, called Discipline, which you should all leave through um, afterwards if you haven't done so yet. Um, there's a lecture series and a kind of um, very extensive and ambitious program of events that kind of uh, all, uh, collects around Discipline. Um, She's written for all of the most important art history journals in Australia and, and, and many overseas. She's a Melbourne critic for Art Forum. Um, she has edited um, more books than I can kind of conceive of. Uh, it's, uh, I don't really know how yet it's happened, um, uh, other than uh, being an extremely impressive person. She's also a curator. She, amongst other things, curated the 2016 Tarawara Biennial. Um, and she's going to talk to us today about Forgery and Colonial Australian Art, and um, she's going to go for around about 40, 45 minutes. There'll be time for questions. Um, cool, thank so you. Over to you, Helen. <clears throat> oh, thanks, everyone, for coming and for James for hosting and all of you for giving up your lunch time. Um, yeah, I was also just thought we uh, would acknowledge that we're on um, Aboriginal land and pay my respect to Wurundjeri ancestors and elders past, present and emerging. Um, James asked me to briefly explain how this uh, project on forgery and colonial Australian art fits into the broader context of my research, so I thought this is where I'd begin the paper. Um, then what I hope to do uh, is introduce you to some of the key artists, artworks and themes that I'm planning to work with um, in this postdoctoral fellowship, which I'm just at the beginning of, that started about two weeks ago. Um, and what I suppose I hoped I uh, might receive from you in turn is um, some of your uh, historical, sort of the historical and theoretical implications um, of this research from a legal perspective, which I'm not so familiar with coming from an art history discipline. Um, so my current research concerns the role of convicted and transported forgers, and by extension, the British law that criminalised them in the early, um, in co early colonial Australian art. And this area is slightly removed from what I usually write about. Um, over the last decade, I've principally researched and written about contemporary art, and um, most typically uh, contemporary art from Australia. So to this end, as James mentioned, I started the journal um, Discipline, which is dedicated to writing about contemporary art and contemporary Australian art. Um, and as James mentioned, I've also worked as a curator at Gertrude Contemporary and um, Monash University Museum of Art, where, amongst other things, I spent several years working uh, on a sort of retrospective and catalogue raisonné and eventually a monograph of the Turkish Cypriot Australian artist Mutlu Chekers, which is in the lower right hand corner. Um, I also collaborate regularly with uh, a colleague of mine at the University of Queensland called Amelia Barakin, who's a really brilliant um, historian of uh, contemporary art and time. And we recently co-edited a monograph on the work of the Melbourne artist Tom Nicholson, whose stained glass window towards a glass monument is now permanently installed in the old quad just across the road. Um, and in my capacity as an editor and a publisher, I've also worked on books about Nick Mangan, 
um, and the Tasmanian Indigenous artist Julie Goff, um, who was a recent guest of the Law School while Des Madison was here. And it was through working with artists like Tom, Nick and Julie that I was compelled to research the early, early colonial period of um, Australian art as part of my practice as a contemporary art as historian, because each of their practices addresses periods of Australian art history other than their own. Um, Tom and Julie's practices are perhaps the most closely related to this project um, because their work fre frequently addresses the early years of colonisation in Australia, analysing how various colonial structures inhere in the present, how they shapeshift or how they are resisted. So to understand Tom's work, for instance, I had to understand the significance of jo John Batman's supposed treaty with the Wurundjeri. And to understand Julie's, I had to understand Governor Arthur's proclamation boards to the Indigenous people of Tasmania. But it's not just contemporary Australian artists that I am or that discipline is interested in. It's um, more the historiography or historicisation of both contemporary art and Australian art as distinct categories. Um, so much of the writing that we publish concerns um, articulating which pressures um, that the which pressures the contemporary moment exerts on the way we think historically about the art of our time and the art of this place, if that makes sense. So in this respect, people frequently compare the editorial project of discipline to its precursor, the journal Art and Text, which was founded in Melbourne by um, the editor, writer and curator Paul Taylor in 1981. Uh, and if Art and Text was established to figure out the significance of postmodernist and deconstructionist thought for Australian artists working in the early 1980s, then discipline's remit has been to understand the significance of theories of contemporaneity which is related to, but not to be completely conflated with globalization on those local artists of our own time. The early colonial period of Australian art is inviting subject matter for anyone interested in the historiography of Australian art because it represents a decisive origin. And origin narratives are always instrumentalized in very strategic ways in art history projects and never more so than they are in nationalist art histories, which in one way or another serve to propose, test or reify a theory about a nation's character, its territorial footprint or its politics. So I'll return to this point in my conclusion. Um, to briefly explain how I got onto the topic of forgery, um, it was through a very much like an amateur's interest in the figure of Joseph Lysette, who was a convicted forger from Staffordshire who created a number of printed albums documenting sort of landscape scenes in New, New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land in the early 1800s, which were then sold um, in England to, in an effort to entice more free settlers over to the southern colonies. And I got interested in his work via people like um, Jeanette Horn, the Warami art historian, John Maynard, and also Bill Gamage, who you can see he's appropriated this picture of um, Joseph Lysette and it, it's a, for his book about indigenous land management technologies, and you can see the picture depicts fire stick burning and um, hunting through Sophia. So it's kind of this resurgence of interest in Lysette as this accidental, accidentally capturing all this very important information that um, has been used by lots of people to disprove claims of Terranalis and so forth. Um, but as I began to research Lysette, 
and Australian convict art more broadly, it was striking just how many other artists were transported here for forgery crimes. Not just Lysette, but also Thomas Watling, Thomas Griffiths Wainwright, the Norwegian artist Nud Bull, um, Richard Reed Sr., amongst many more um, less well-known figures. So this is um, uh, kind of got a bit of a dubious attribution to Thomas Watling, but it's considered to be the first oil painting of Sydney ever produced. Um, this is a really interesting painting by the Norwegian artist I mentioned, Nud Bull, who um, was famous for doing marinescapes in Hobart town. And this is a painting of um, a shipwreck of a convict hulk called uh, George III um, in 1835 in the D'Entrecasto Channel in um, Van Diemen's Land. And it was very tragic because um, there were 294 people on board and 194 people perished and the majority of them were convicts. And so this painting is kind of rare because it shows well, convicts in the first instance, you know, trying to salvage aspects of the wreckage in the front. And this is like a sort of um, deliciously creepy picture of uh, the Cutmere sisters, Jane and Lucy. Um, and it's by an interesting character called Thomas Griffiths Wainwright, who I'll tell you a little bit more a bit later on in the paper. But what I like about this um, sort of watercolour and pencil drawing is that uh, he made it when he was um, a convict in the Hobart, in the Hobart uh, convict barracks for his prison keeper who, and in exchange for giving materials uh, to make the work. So he sort of, I like it, it's a weird document of incarceration. It's also kind of a, shows a bit of an economy operating within um, the prison. And, and um, after he was, he got, Wainwright got quite sick after he arrived in Hobart was subsequently transferred to the Hobart Hospital, where he formed a similar relationship with one of the ward, wardsmen there and made a painting of his three daughters. And then that wardsman and his wife eventually helped successfully petition for his freedom. So I'm sort of thinking of these objects as almost like objects of exchange, or these artworks as objects of exchange in some way. Um, so at first, looking at all these artists who were convicted of forgery, I was just tickled by the irony of it all. Um, then I began to investigate why it was that so many people were being convicted of forgery in Great Britain in the first place and why, when it was um, a crime punishable by death, so many convicted forgers were instead being transported to Australia where they then had opportunities to work as artists. And these are some of the questions I'll try and um, cover in the rest of the paper. So in my preliminary, preliminary research, I also learned about the numerous other ways in which the skilled labour of convicted forgers was put to work in the Australian colonies. So on drafting or copying architectural plans, designing or manufacturing metal and paper currency and so on. And I also became interested in the range of folk art made by forgers, um, particularly love tokens or what is known as, oh wait, sorry, there's one more, I'll tell you about this later. Um, but these are love tokens, um, which were typically made as gifts for loved ones just prior to transportation. And they were made by filing off the face of um, a, a, a coin, usually a um, cartwheel penny, which was made of copper, so more malleable, and it had a larger surface area to sort of engrave on. Um, they weren't always produced by the person who was um, going to give the token because uh, uh, they might not have the skills or they may be illiterate. Um, so there's kind of a theory that they were probably made by forgers also as part, um, convicted forgers in prisons as part of a kind of prison economy. Um, and so anyway, this is one I like. And you can see, like, although this is an etching on the left-hand side, which is the 
defaced sort of side of the coin. You can see that the typography um, is very related in sort of skill and technique to the typography on the on the other side, which has been struck with a coin die. So different technique, but obviously similar sort of skill set involved. Um, this one I like because it depicts a convict hulk, and it's often said that we don't have enough images of um, uh, English prisons made by Australian convicts, which is something else we'll be talking about today. But I think it's important to think of the um, hulks also as prisons on water. And also the, the writing here is very beautiful and controlled. Um, which also suggests that it was made by um, someone very skilled um, in, in this way. And this is a less skilled one, but interesting nonetheless. Um, you might not be able to tell, but on the left-hand side, it shows a picture of a man wearing chains. And on the right-hand, there's a message engraved that says, James Pratt, age 14, 1836. Happy is the day and hour the helpless prisoner is set free, released out of the jailer's power and breathes the air of liberty. And this technique, which is like a stipling technique, you can probably guess, is um, related to stick-and-poke tattooing, which is also a massive part of convict culture. And interestingly, a lot of the messages and images that you have um, on the love tokens are repeated across the bodies of the prisoners. And all these um, tattoos were, of course, recorded by the administration when they were putting convicts on the ship, taking them off the ship, because it was pre-photography. And so some of the phrases that are repeated um, include, like, when this you see, well, think of me when this you see until I get my liberty. So anyway, it's kind of interesting. Um, but for the purpose of today, I thought I could uh, get into the key themes and questions of the project um, by one painting in particular, which is relevant to what I believe you do here at the law school sometimes, and that is um, staging mock trials or uh, mock courts. Um, this is also a topic I'm trying to learn more about because all the literature I've come across um, about mock courts in 18th century convict culture has been a bit sort of happenstance, like and I haven't been able to sort of make sense of it in a more organised way. Um, so this painting, The Mock Trial, is attributed to Francis Greenway, who was a convicted forger from Bristol, um, but who is better remembered as Australia's first government architect or our first official um, architect. Uh, in between 1816 and 1828, he worked with the fifth governor of New South Wales, um, Lachlan Macquarie, to design, build or make alterations to um, a large number of public works, including the General Hospital, Parramatta Jail and the convict barracks at Hyde Park. And beautifully for a forger, he also designed the old mint. And strangely, in the 1960s, his face um, wound up on one side of the Australian $10 note. But um, the painting that we're looking at depicts um, an interior courtyard of Newgate Prison, also known as Bristol City and County Jail, located in the centre of the old port city of Bristol in England's southwest. And we can see here the inmates gathered around the perimeter of um, this courtyard, which they all refer to colloquially as the tennis court. Um, the cast of inmates in the painting is entirely male. Um, all of them are convicted felons as opposed to debtors because they were separated in, in prisons at that time. Although within the group there is some obvious diversity. Um, we can see that the lineup is flanked by um, youths and we know that children as young as 11 were incarcerated in this prison in 1812. Um, while the oldest character you can see looks like a ghost sort of jumping out of the shadowy archway here. Greenway also depicts a spectrum of financial status from impoverishment to relative affluence, 
one man is shoeless, another man's clothes are torn, whereas the more well-heeled inmates wear frock coats, waistcoats and cravats. But a better indication of their financial status is the amount of iron manacles worn by each inmate, because everyone who entered the prison was shackled when they arrived, um, to easily distinguish them from the visitors who were able to come in whenever they liked. Um, it was kind of very open in that way. Um, in a process known as easement of irons, fees could be paid to the jailkeeper to lighten the weight of their shackles, um, and this was one means of um, a, a jailkeeper earning their wage. The prevalence of alcohol in the picture, which is um, indicated by the ceramic flagons held by three of the inmates, is another, because most prisons in England at this time ran a house tap, selling beer, sometimes wine, and even on occasion gin to inmates who could drink as much as they could afford to, and this was all for the profit of the jail. Um, but most crucially within the picture, we note the depiction of more crimes being committed inside the jail. And this reflects a very common criticism of English prison culture that you would all be well aware of at this time, which was simply that criminals beget criminals. So um, Arthur Griffiths, a late 19th century chronicler of London's Newgate prison, put this uh, very memorably when he wrote, um, the prison was still and long continued to be a school of depravity, to which came tyros, some already viciously inclined, some still innocent, to be quickly taught all manner of iniquity and to graduate and take honours in crime. Um, so accordingly, Greenway inflects the sociality of this prison scene with a certain type of fatalism, um, one that pivots on the act of pickpocketing. So in the, this painting, we see hands um, that thieve, drink and smoke, uh, point, scratch, tickle, clutch, pat and gesticulate. But most importantly, as they reach into neighbours' pockets or around their shoulders, form a handshake or a subtle distraction, hands bind the inmates to one another, locking them like their iron manacles into a single criminal, or perhaps more accurately, criminalised class. Um, the title of the painting alludes to a custom performed by convicts in the 18th century and earlier, which was to stage a mock court or trial. So Griffiths, who I mentioned before, um, and he was a former military officer and a prison administrator, um, he describes the custom as an inverted form of justice, whereby a prisoner, who would most often be a, a morally upright type, perhaps uh, wrongfully convicted in the first place um, and refusing to concede to the criminal conduct within the, um, within the prison. Uh, so when he is perceived to have committed a, an offence against the dominant prison community, he would be trialled by a mock court within the jail. And offences that Griffiths um, lists that m might um, get him in trouble included coughing too loudly, leaving a door open or moving an object that was not to be touched. Then he writes, <clears throat> this is a quote, a prisoner, generally the oldest and most dexterous thief, was appointed judge and a towel tied in knots was hung on each side in imitation of a wig. The judge sat in proper form. He was punctiliously styled, my lord. A jury having been selected and duly sworn, the culprit was then arraigned. <clears throat> Various punishments were inflicted, the heaviest, the heaviest of which was, which, which was standing the pillory. And this was carried out by putting the criminal's head through the legs of a chair and stretching out his arms and tying them to the legs. The culprit was then compelled to carry the chair about with him, but all these punishments might readily be commuted into a fine to be spent in gin for the judge and jury. 
paintings topsy-turvy world of justice crimes are committed during perhaps even as part of official judicial procedure so um, this man here is holding the judge's wig while his right hand picks the pocket of his neighbor <laughs> and um, this is the makeshift pillory and the leather strap that you would secure the convict's arms to it and you can tell that this is um, sorry it's the, it's the same kind of wooden bench that is seen there, but you just see it from the underside here, if that makes sense. <clears throat> um, but there are other more sympathetic explanations uh, for the purpose of a mock trial um, amongst the convict classes. Peter Linnebor writes that about the practice of mock courts within the um, Irish poor and working classes living in London in the 18th century as a kind of cathartic theatre. In this community, mock courts were often staged as part of a wake, you know, celebrating the death or, or mourning the death of someone. And they would be sort of staged alongside other games, uh, including coining the money, hiding the robber, and hearing confessions. Linnebaugh explains that these games were, were indeed inversions of class-based justice, they were parodies of um, the British legal system against which these poor and working class Irish men and women stood barely a chance. And he also quotes an old Bailey proverb from the time, um, which makes the same point, uh, which goes, the name of an Irish man is enough to hang him. The numismatist Timothy Millet has also suggested that detainees in London's Newgate in the 18th and early 19th centuries tried each other in their cells, instructing those convicts still awaiting their trial on what to say and do in court as a kind of support service. And this would also account for why, from Griffith's perspective, the most hardened criminal would be the one directing proceedings as a judge, because he would have had the most um, real life experience in courts and assizes. Um, but whatever the case, <clears throat> we can tell from this painting that it's painter Greenway um, disidentified uh, probably for class reasons, with the activity of the mock trial. Uh, and that's because the mock trial is um, thought to be a self-portrait and has been understood to be one by the successive generations of Greenways who have owned this painting. Um, <coughs> so here you can see, uh, this is anyway who people understand to be uh, Greenway to be, like this is his self-portrait. Um, uh, and so you can see him sitting there in a navy frock coat with his pipe in his left hand pointing back to the centre of the painting with his right index finger um, and he's looking beyond the edge of the canvas as if he's mid-conversation with someone who we can't see off, off the um, edge of the composition um, and meanwhile a young inmate is taking something out of his pocket you can see here so um, one of his biographers James Broadbent makes the astute observation that um, compositionally Greenway depicts himself as a distinguished figure among but not of the mob. And I think that is definitely what we're seeing here. Um, I won't discuss it in any depth, just to note that the mock trial has a companion painting, which is untitled but goes by the name Seen Inside Newgate Prison. Um, <coughs> which was painted the previous month in July 1812, but in fact depicts 
an event that occurred after that of the mock trial. In other words, the paintings should be read sequentially, like this. So we saw in the earlier painting Greenway's pocket being pinched, and in the latter, Greenway um, reappears here, uh, perhaps complaining to the red coat that his pocket watch is gone. And you can see it, uh, or hopefully you can see it. I'll go. That's where the, the two are installed at the Mitchell Library. This is a better image, but you can see the pocket watch. It's, a, it's at the very centre of the composition over this game of cards being played. So when Greenway painted these two pictures uh, in July and August of 1812, he'd already been tried and convicted of forgery. On March the 23rd in, uh, in 1812 at the Bristol Assizes, he pled guilty to the capital offence and the judge condemned him to be hanged. However, <clears throat> at some point during the intervening months, Greenway's sentence was commuted to 14 years transportation. In April 1813, he was transferred from Newgate to the Prison Hulk Captivity, and in August to the General Hewitt, which then sailed to New South Wales. Um, also aboard the General Hewitt was another convicted forger and soon-to-be colonial artist of significance, the um, Joseph Lysette, who I mentioned earlier. And Lysette was immediately granted a ticket of leave upon his arrival in Sydney in recognition of the... Um, utterly degraded conditions for convicts on board. Uh, by the time the ship reached New South Wales, 34 of its uh, male convicts had died and been given sea burials, mainly due to dysentery. And this is a, like a rather nice um, aquatint by Lysette, which is useful for thinking these two uh, figures being together uh, on board the General Hewitt, because you can see um, a number of Greenway's buildings in it. So you can see... Um, the Hyde Park Barracks and St. Ja this is the Hyde Park Barracks and St. James Church there, and that's Fort Macquarie and that one I have to just check what that building is. The Government House Stables, which he sort of designed and built all of them. So prior to his arrest, Greenway had operated a small <clears throat> architecture firm and stonemason's yard in Bristol with his brothers John and Olive, which they opened in 1805. By April 1809, he'd been declared bankrupt. And by May of that year, the three brothers were de declared collectively bankrupt and it was advertised to all their creditors that their belongings were now available to be taken at the, at the value of what they were owed to them. Um, and the rest of the, their belongings would be sold at, at auction. And this is the beginning of, a, of an entire life of mining troubles for Greenway. He died a pauper in Sydney eventually. Um, a few years later, in January 1812, Greenway forged a memorandum that he claimed was appended to, but had gone mysteriously missing from, a contract between himself as architect and a client, Colonel Doolan. Doolan had contracted Greenway to complete an unfinished building for a fee of 1,300 guineas, uh, but towards the end of the building works that they entered into a dispute. Greenway claimed that Doolan had promised to pay him an extra 250 pounds, and that Doolan's solicitor, Mr Cook, had written a memorandum to this effect. This had been appended to the building contract but had now gone missing. Greenway then placed an advertisement in a local newspaper, The Mercury, offering a prize of 10 guineas to anyone who could locate the missing contract. 
Several days later, Greenway produced the document saying it had been left at the Mercury office with an anonymous letter that conveniently renounced the reward. With the contract in tow, which of course Greenway had forged, he then proceeded to sue Dolan for the £250 he claimed were owed to him, but witnesses immediately proved that the handwriting didn't belong to Cook and Greenway was charged with the forgery. Um, the broader social and legal context of forgery and its criminalisation in Great Britain at the time of uh, Greenway's arrest offers further insight into uh, the artworks. I'll go back to them. From the late 17th century, systems of private credit became increasingly central to England's national prosperity, allowing it to grow its economy by spending and borrowing more. Meanwhile, English society was undergoing a profound shift in that it had to radically reconceive its understanding of financial value from being tied to the weight of the bullion to a fiduciary relationship that was based entirely on trust. As the country expanded its use of paper instruments like bills, obligatory, exchequer bills, banknotes and promissory notes, it um, produced an environment in which forgery naturally flourished. So Peter Linovore has noted that the financial innovations of the late 17th century established a credit market that must be understood as a trust in the future stability of the state itself, thus rendering the policing of credit utterly crucial to maintaining economic and political stability. Because of the threat it represented, forgery became, in Randall McGowan's words, the quintessential offence of the long 18th century. <coughs> During this time, the crime of forgery had two main expressions, which fell upon roughly class lines. On the one hand, there existed the offences of coining and producing fake banknotes using a printing press. And these types of forgeries were, in a sense, victimless or, or social offences because by defrauding banks, victimhood was dispersed across everyone who participated in the economy. Coining and producing fake banknotes also relied heavily on technical skills and access to machinery, which more readily associated these cases with the working class. By contrast, the forging of promissory notes was considered a form of bourgeois treason one that produced an individual victim. It was dependent on a certain intimacy, on the forger being sufficiently familiar with a creditor's handwriting, namely their signature. So as such, uh, Randall McGowan again notes that there were deep emotional as well as economic issues peculiar to this type of forgery due to the fact that the perpetrator and victim typically came from the same social class and were often well known to each other. For these reasons, Forgery came to be considered, uh, to quote, 1759 issue of the ordinary of London's Newgate prison. Um, it came to be considered one of the worst and most dangerous kinds of theft, bereaving a person of his nearest and most undoubted property, even his handwriting, which is the key of all he possesses or enjoys. Paul Baines explains that in the new financial markets of 18th century Britain, the individual's existence was actually transmitted through credit, the self circulated as a name on a document, simultaneously powerful and vulnerable to forgery. So forgery's attack on the verisimilitude of individuals as represented by their orthography, the handwriting, uh, and on money, which has now become decoupled from an intrin intrinsic metallurgic value, 
uh, thus begun to undermine trust more generally among civil society. For these reasons, English society at this time has been described as um, being overcome by a moral panic on the issue of forgery. Yet, while reviled by much of English society, there was also a kind of respect reserved for the most ingenious forgers who were fated for possessing a special kind of wit. Analyzing examples of rogue literature and criminal biography, Baines shows that forgery uh, was understood equally as a form of picaresque self-creation as it was an economic crime. And by the second half of the 19th century, it was considered to be by many a dark art, but an art nevertheless. So on this note, we might briefly return to that figure I mentioned earlier, um, Thomas Griffith Wainwright, who was transported from England to Van Diemen's Land in 1837 for the crime of forgery. In addition to forging legal documents that would deliver him money in the case of various relatives' deaths, which interestingly, for which he still remains the suspected murderer, um, Wainwright was also a practicing artist associated with the Royal Academy and he wrote regular art criticism for the London magazine under an array of extravagant pseudonyms including Janus Weathercock, Egomet Bonmot and Van Vinkvooms. Um, and Oscar Wilde and Arthur Conan Doyle are among um, many people who became um, totally infatuated with his story and wrote about him. So the creativity attached to the subterfuge of forgery has led numerous scholars like Paul Baines, who I've been quoting a bit, to examine the relationship between it and 18th and 19th century English literature, which is the central tenet of uh, Baines' book, The House of Forgery, likewise for Nick Groom's book, The Forger's Shadow, and also for Sarah Moulton's book, Forgery in 19th Century Literature and Culture. Comparing economic crimes and their punishment with famous cases of literary forgery, such as Thomas Chatterton's forgery of medieval poetry or William Henry Ireland's forging of new, two new um, Shakespeare plays, Baines's book considers how British criminal law across the century changed incrementally to reify individuality, ultimately leading to literary copyright laws and more acute possessive property rights. Focusing on the 19th century as opposed to the 18th century, Moulton's book parses intersections between economic forgery and its treatment as literary theme. Largely analysing fictitious forgers in Victorian novels written after capital punishment for forgery crimes had been repealed in the 1830s, her thesis pivots on the concept of illegitimacy. That is, she relates economic forgery to the laws and customs surrounding bastardy or the bearing of illegitimate children uh, and the forging of newly imagined kinship lines through doctored wills, birth certificates and the transferal of inheritance that would come with them. As Moulton argues, both the forger and the bastard are perceived to be a drain on the economy because under poor law, whichever parish um, an illegitimate child is born into, uh, becomes responsible for the child's upkeep along with that of its mother during her lying in period until the child is old enough to work or be sent to the workhouse. The forged coin, banknote, birth certificate or will, like the bastard, has no authentic or legitimate origin. As such, the related figures of the forger and the bastard not only represent a threat to economy, but, and this is Moulton's thesis, 
a threat to social memory, even history itself. So while, as we have seen, there is an established tradition of thinking literature and forgery together, there is also a relationship to be explored between economic forgery and visual art, one that I'm suggesting plays out um, in very interesting ways during the colonisation of Australia. As moral indignation around the crime and the subsequent um, consequent per persecution of forgers escalated across Great Britain in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, so too did early colonial Australia's artistic population begin to swell through the process of convict transportation. Over half the artist's canvas in Jocelyn Hackforth, Hackforth Jones's book, um, The Convict Artist, uh, which is a study of all the convict artists working in um, New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land between 1788 and 1852, were convicted forgers. Um, and I should note that there, that is really the only book about convict art in Australia, the, most, the only focused book on the topic. Um, and there are also a further number of convict artists working in both those uh, places at this time who were indict, indicted on charges of larceny, like William Bulow Gould or um, Charles Constantini, but who are thought to have participated in forgery crimes despite not being transported for them. And there are sort of complications around uh, um, uh, understanding the extent to which forgery was, was being um, processed in the courts, which we can talk about in question times perhaps. It just produces some unreliability with um, sort of statistics in the courts, I think. Anyhow, until 1729, the punishment for forgery was a fine or a round in the pillory, an act intended to shame and identify the perpetrator to the public. But following the implementation of a wide-reaching forgery statute of 1729, forgery in all its forms became a capital offence, the forger now deemed beyond reform. This new sweeping forgery statute applied to any deed, will, testament, bond, writing obligatory, bill of exchange, promissory note for payment of money, endorsement or assignment of any bill of exchange or promissory note for payment of money, or acquittance or receipt, either for money or goods, along with anyone who shall falsely make, forge or counterfeit, or cause or procure to be falsely made, forged or counterfeited, or willingly act or as assist in the false making, forging or counterfeiting, or shall utter or publish as true any of the previously defined instruments, knowing the same to be false. All now publishable by death, uh, punishable by death. Um, accordingly, uh, Peter Linnebaugh identifies this forgery act as one of the five deadliest capital statutes of the 18th century, one that would go on to deliver hordes of men and women to the gallows. By the second half of the 18th century, forgery trials delivered an extremely high death sentence rate in the courts, severe even by the standards of 18th century Britain. Between 1749 and 1771, for instance, three quarters of all convicted forgers were hanged. By contrast, those up on larceny convictions were executed at a rate closer to 10%. The Transportation Act of 1719 <coughs> authorised a sentence of 14 years transportation for those pardoned of capital offences and seven years transportation for those guilty of felony without benefit of clergy. This commutation process applied to Thomas Watling, 
the con uh, who was convicted of forgery in Scotland in 1788 and sentenced to 14 years in 1789, arriving, as it is said, as the first professional artist in Sydney in 1791. This was also the case for Greenway, whose sentence, we will recall, was committed from death to transportation in 1812. So, um, Upon the arrival of the First Fleet, there were obviously no prison buildings extant in New South Wales. Therefore, convicts were put to work either as labourers for the government or were assigned as labourers to private individuals who were simply charged with their upkeep. Generally speaking, the services of artists were considered too valuable for them to be sent to work on government farms or to perform menial tasks. They were therefore typically assigned to work as labourers for individuals. Thomas Watling, to take a very, the most renowned example, was assigned to Chief Surgeon John White, who had him produce over 140 drawings of native plant and wildlife species with a view to publishing them as a collected volume. Lysette, to take another, produced a range of landscape engravings of New South Wales um, under the employ of the Emancipus Absalon West, which were then sold to punters back in Great Britain. So it was not just within the realms of visual art and architecture that convicted forgers flourished in early colonial Australia. When Macquarie needed to create the colony's first local currency, it was to a convicted coiner whom he turned. In the early years of New South Wales, a mixture of British and foreign currencies was used for exchange, mainly the um, Spanish dollar or piece of eight. Um, which was the common international currency of the time. However, the nascent colony was highly dependent on imported goods and services and had little to export in return, which meant that it was um, exceedingly difficult to keep foreign currency on shore. The solution to this problem was the holy dollar and dump. Gover Governor Macquarie had the idea of minting 80,000 new coins from 40,000 Spanish dollars by punching a hole out of the centre, which was the dump valued at 15 pence, and retaining the perimeter, the holy dollar, valued at five shillings. Both sections were then counter-stamped with their new values and patriotic allegiances laid right over the top of the Spanish coin design, which remained partially visible beneath. Thus effectively destroyed for trade on the international market, the recomposed Spanish dollar was now forced to remain on shore. And it's interesting to note that re-stamping a coin was one of the many forgery crimes that you could be prosecuted for in Great Britain, but of course it is the technique used to originate our first official currency here in Australia. The person that Macquarie enlisted to manufacture the holy dollar and dump was the convicted and transported coin forger, William Henschel, originally from England's rural midlands, whom Macquarie recognised to be a capable die sinker and maker of coins. That's a quote. He wound up in New South Wales after being discovered forging silver dollars on the Bank of England in 1805. Also interestingly, in 1816, when Macquarie resolved to establish the Bank of New South Wales, its first appointed engraver was an Irishman named Samuel Clayton, who had been convicted of forgery in Dublin and sentenced to seven years transportation, arriving in New South Wales on the convict hulk, the Surrey, that December. Two years later, in 1818, the convicted forger and artist, a lesser known artist, uh, John Austin, 
who was also transported for attempting to, to defraud the Bank of Ireland, succeeded Clayton as the bank's engraver and held this post until his death in 1837. So just to summarise, and this is um, obviously already very well known, convicts transported to Australia were uh, understood to be sources of both skilled and unskilled labour and they were crucial to the development of the colony. But despite it being a crime, forgery represented a form of skilled labour that, as this brief overview hopefully shows, was robustly exploited by the colonial administration in numerous ways. So now, <clears throat> this is the conclusion, I'm nearly finished. Um, the Australian convict and labour historians Tony Moore and Michael Quinlan have argued for the importance of historicising convicts together as a criminalised class, this as opposed to treating them individually, which is how the courts necessarily treated them. Historicising transported convicts together, they argue, allows us to perceive patterns in both British criminal law and colonial administration, as well as patterns in convict resistance and self-determination. While individual convict artists have been afforded significant attention throughout Australian art history, they are frequently dealt with um, via individualising monographs. For instance, Thomas Bock has several monographs um, attached to exhibitions about his life and work, and Lysette has an innumerable, innumerable amount of monographs um, on his. If not a monograph, the convict artists are incorporated into broader surveys of early colonial art alongside other figures like the naval draftsmen or the free-settling professional artists and so on. However, as I mentioned before, besides Jocelyn Hackforth-Jones' book, there are no um, interpretive accounts of convict art as a specific category in its own right, speaking about the Australian context only. So as um, we have said, forgers constitute the majority of convict artists in the early colonial period of Australia, perhaps because forgery and art have transferable skill sets. And moreover, we recall that forgery um, can be considered to be the quintessential offence of the long 18th century all of which suggests to me that the convict, forger convict artist is the exemplary figure with which we might begin um, an analysis of Australian convict art. If we return back to Sarah Moulton, her yoking of economic forgery to bastardy is naturally a very suggestive methodology for thinking through the significance of the con contribution of convicted forgers to early colonial Australian art. One can fairly easily imagine transposing her forgery bastardy paradigm onto a history of Australia, the bastard country whose colonisers possess what can only be understood as an illegitimate claim to Aboriginal land. Indeed, the historiography of Australian art has always pivoted around this tension, that is, white Australia's lack of an authentic origin or identity. For Bernard Smith, the so-called grandfather of Australian art history, the struggle for Australian artists to go beyond importing European trends is the key struggle, the struggle for a kind of self-determination, which subtends his canonical history of Australian art, place, taste and tradition from 1945. Smith's student, Ian McLean, who's now the um, Hugh Ramsey Chair of Australian Art History here at the University of Melbourne, um, writes very beautifully about the deep-seated uneasiness of white Australian identity in the opening chapter of his important book, White Aborigines, 
identity politics in Australian art. Of course, in 1974, Terry Smith famously cast the unoriginality of Australian art in structural terms, labelling it our provincialism problem on the pages of Art Forum. And then in the early 1980s, Art and Text Journal published a series of theoretical essays claiming that this unoriginality in characteristic postmodern rhetoric um, is in fact Australian art's positivist defining quality, which is to say Australian art's inauthenticity is paradoxically what constitutes its authentic character, what makes it unique. Of course, <laughs> these authors, who are people like Paul Taylor, Philip Brophy, Megan Morris and Paul Foss, were all referring to white or European Australian art. The ease with which we can imagine casting this history of early colonial Australian art in Moulton's terms, in which the forgery bastardy paradigm would be used to make a point that has been iterated across generations of Australian art history, playing on all the familiar tropes of antipodality and inversion, what is crime there is a virtue here, illegitimate there, legitimate here, and so on, is precisely the reason not to. In a way, that book is already written in advance of itself, and nor, I think, would it fully take on the lesson of forgery, the exposure of which, as Moulton says, does not simply affirm the truth, but rather confirms the existence of a long-concealed lie. Instead, we can use the forgery paradigm as a pivot to do something different, not to think about what constitutes Australian art's true character or history, or to psychoanalyze why white or European Australian culture fetishizes authentic origins in the first place. Rather, we might mobilize the forgery paradigm to, illum to illuminate a transnational archive, both an imperial, an imperial one dictated from the top down, so thinking of scientific drawings, map making, architectural plans, and also one forged by convicts from the bottom up. So if we think of the love tokens and the tattoos and um, some populist whale painting, which I can show you more of later. As art historians like McLean, Rex Butler and ADS Donaldson have stressed, Australian art history has been overly preoccupied with delineating an Australia, thereby centering the ideology of the nation state. This emphasis on what is or isn't Australian has led to a certain neglect of the role that convict artists, as a distinct category, might play in broader transnational narratives of colonialism and capitalism. Such a study is more concerned with mapping practices and networks of circulation than Australia's borders, which is why coins, notes and love tokens, or portraits drawn in exchange for freedom, and so on, would constitute its dynamic archive. These objects are not just significant for what they representationally show us, but for revealing the conditions under which they were produced what bartering could be achieved with and through them, where and how um, they and their makers travelled, and where they wound up eventually. In short, we would conceive of this archive not simply as representations of, but agents within 18th and 19th century processes of colonisation, incarceration, transportation, capitalism, and perhaps in some instances, minor expressions of their resistance. Thank you. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash 
Illa podcast. That's double I L A H podcast.